Hey everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Season 1. You deserve congratulations for making it this far. Of course, by this point, you know how each episode is laid out. But just to remind you, we read the last chapter of A Light in the Mist. Then we go into a section known as the Origin of Ideas, where the ideas that have been discussed in the chapter, we discuss their origins, how they came to be. Then we go into a section known as Tips of the Trade, for all you aspiring authors out there that are just looking for tips of the trade to help get you started, or if you're looking for that little bit extra already along your journey. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. A Light in the Mist Chapter 7 Till Death Do Us Part It's been a pleasure. But, well, you have overstayed your welcome. And as Finch primes his revolver to his side and points in our direction, a gust of wind falls upon me, as if by movement. Suddenly I am removed from my current position, and with a push from James the gunshot claims him instead. As he lay motionless, I struggle to remove him from my holster, my only means of defence. Well, at least you got to see him first. Eh, Jackal? Give my regards to the gallows. As McLean pulls out his revolver and strikes the back of Finch's neck, incapacitating him for the time being. McLean, am I glad to see you. How did you get here? I thought, no, Jackal, not every policeman falls for such a trick twice. I was dropped off down the street. Thought you may know something I had yet to discover. I realised now I was right. And with an outstretched hand, Flint began to stir. Stupid old fool. Cannot even bloody shoot straight. But he did ruin my jacket, the bastard. James. You are absolutely right. And I think you should have thought twice before jumping in a bullet's path. But you had your reasons, I suppose. I owe you my life, my friend. Stop with the heartwarming, Jekyll. You would have done the same had you been given my position, and I'm sure you'll repay me soon enough. And with a gesture of gratitude, I was just glad I did not have to depart without goodbyes. So how does this all add up, then, Jekyll? Would you mind filling in the patches for us, please? You do not know how long I've waited to hear you say that, McLean. Let us start at the beginning, shall we? As I take a series of deep breaths, my mind reaching out as if to be torn from my skull, I ponder and begin this darkened tale with each corner I would turn, leading me to further mystery. But now, thanks to our evidence we had collected, those corners were lit, and the correct way through the halls of Finch's mind became clear to me. His abilities, his trickery, his blatant disregard for other people, would not help him on this day of judgment. It starts with a letter, a somewhat harmless letter, I might add, being sent to Sergeant McLean of Scotland Yard, as you would expect, McLean investigated and was apprehended by Finch, bound never to give his opinion until the deed was done, and by this I mean the quest for power and murder, but not of the photographer, but of the royal household. This would ensure control over our great nation's empire by blood snitch. Once this had been achieved, McLean would simply become dead weight. I, in no regard for the dead, I did not receive any treatment at all. And that's why I was able to escape. Actually, Sergeant, 
We found you and cut you loose. Do you not remember? Dalton Schumann, adding their somewhat tainted opinions and testing McLean's resolve. Had these officers a death wish? Quite. We then realise that before the murder of Augustus Pine, a false McLean is planted within this chess game and designed to lure us from our homes and as animals of innocence we played directly into his hands. As we continued with our investigation, plans were already set in motion to, at first, put us on the wrong path and believe Mr. Ilias to be the murderer, which we now know to be innocent, and second, once that had failed, for us to become the pawns and meet our downfall, leaving Bloodsnitch without opposition. Yes, Jekyll. And it would have succeeded, if not for you two being the best the world has to offer. Dolts adds, as Schumann first tells, trying to cover the fact that they did nothing to help in our hour of need, despite knowing of the false McCline. Ah, yes, officers Dolts and Schumann, also pawns to be played in this battle of the mines. Shall we evaluate your roles in this? Let us start with your knowledge of the false McCline, and yet you spoke of nothing to alert us to his presence. You achieve no part in the rescue of either myself or James, and furthermore you take full credit for the imprisonment and eventual death of the false McCline without so much as an apology. We are greatly sorry, Jekyll, but with McCline monitoring our every move and the location of the real McCline still unknown, we needed to remain hidden and figure it out ourselves. Only then could we truly assist you in apprehending him. As they prostrate themselves before us, my conscience condemns my words, and my heart takes over. I understand. You two did what I and Flint would have done. You waited for an opportunity to arise, and with that you acted upon it. Rescued McCline, and it is thanks to those actions we stand here victorious over Bloodsnitch. To continue. After escaping from our frightening ordeal, and meeting once more with our friend Professor McCain, I noticed something. Something I had first missed. An act of kindness is a rarity in this city, for it is too expensive, apparently. However, McLean and Finch both possessed silver watches that appeared as compasses, with blank faces and no dials. In realising this, I found myself wondering whether we had been tricked from the start, and this watch was a calling card for their brotherhood. But I possess no such wash. I'm allergic to silver. It's not fine enough for my tastes, ha. Huh? as McLean draws a well-lit pipe to his mouth and takes of its contents in the hopes to ease the atmosphere that gripped the room, now more than ever. Obviously, Sergeant, that was the false McLean's undoing and the reason why he's not among us. But I cannot help but wonder why Pine had several causes of death if he was murdered by a single person, unless he was not. Finch? <laughs> so... It arises, as do I. My hands may be shackled, but my thoughts remain free, and I will give no help. So, you might as well sentence me, because I will release nothing. You do not need to, Finch. You see, as you shared a gesture of kindness, you made a fatal mistake. You touched me. With your hand on my arm, all was revealed. As everyone looks upon me, as if I had revealed the truth that had never been brought to their attention previous. Look upon his hand, Sergeant. Do you recall a mark? Yes, Jekyll. But what does it stand for? A good question. But one I have the answer. To cast your minds back, Officers Dulch and Schumann, right before we were arrested, a symbol 
at Biggins, that same symbol on that pigeon. Gerald's pigeon. Finch's accomplice, or once an accomplice, but after seeing the condemnation and realising his brotherhood cared not for its members. But for one only. Finch. That symbol is Bloodsnitch. So, you see why I instructed many to arrest this group. Because its members are everywhere, even in the most desolate places, and that is why this case is only one of many to come, as many of them remain at large. Although, there is still the matter of Augustus' murder to clear up, and I think I know how it was achieved. You see, you say you were with Pine the entire evening, but several eyewitnesses from Mr. and Mrs. Ilias Furs and Wares Incorporated say otherwise. They see you disappearing between 5pm and 5.15pm, just enough time to strangle Augustus Pine and leave him unconscious, so as not to class for murder, but for a sadistic ritual initiation with your recent member, Miss Idlewin, now known as Mrs. Ilias. A new shop owner with just enough money to fund this little group of yours, Finch. But you had no idea that she would make a mockery of it. So you would return to the scene of the crime between 5.45pm and 5.55pm to clean up and ensure the mistakes were covered. That, Finch, led to your unravelling. So perhaps the next person you enlist at least makes sure they know how to kill and not arouse suspicion as to how many were involved. Do I even need a sentence? You seem to judge just fine all on your own. But alas, I must give credit where it is due. Such is the gentleman in me. Well done, Jackal. I care not for your praises, Finch. But it was James who single-handedly thwarted your entire plan with one discovery. And... Gentle? There is no gentle in you, I assure you. And for the record books, you will only be gentle once passed from this life. All this bears well, Jekyll. But what are the rest of the plan? I believe our friend's testimony is needed. May I present Miss Samantha Pine, heiress to the sum of the Pine estate, worth 104 million sovereign of priceless furniture and the house itself. Yes, it was to be mine, as my brother had left it to me in his will. We were ever so close, but when the bank learned of this, I lost all that my name had to offer, and my claim... That, too, was lost. Yes. With Augustus dead, and you to be the new manager of a state, and all it was worth, would be used for your purposes, while Samantha would receive nothing in return. Finance and control, your own little senate, and just like Rome before you, your plan was to expand and reap the reward of the empire. But alas, your quest for power has yielded to the law's power. Now the only empire you will govern is the one that lies beneath. For someone who had apparently changed heart, you seem the same to me. So vindictive of criminals, not willing to give a second chance, only when we save your life so as to see another day. That is what Gerald granted you. And you reward me with the same fate, only mine is dishonoured, and that is why people like you will never change. Some deserve a second chance, and some are truly sorry for their actions. But people like me are trained to see those as innocent, and people like you with no remorse, no compassion. 
and willing to let your family die with you, are judged as guilty. But here is something I can offer you, a chance to redeem yourself. Tell me who the other members of Bloodsnitch are, and I will at least see that your family is buried with proper ceremony, with you next to them. That I can promise. I die, and take that knowledge with me. And as I leave, Jekyll, the burden of the loss of one's father and loving mother die with me. Forever be it on your souls, and when the day comes that you are judged, may it stain your mind. May you be seen as murderers this day. And then perhaps you will realize that no matter which side you appear, no matter where your allegiances lie, in the eyes of this world, you and I are both the same. As Finch pulls McLean's unsheathed revolver and assaults McLean, Finch retreats past me and James, knocking us both to the ground, and retrieves the contents of the safe. I leap to follow, and James grasps my hand. Do not hesitate, old friend, passing me his revolver and favouring his shoulder. Take care of Samantha, will you, dear boy? Have no fear, Jekyll. I will see her safe. I pursue after Finch. He would not evade me, for I had come this far not to give up now. Hold, Finch! It is finished. There is nowhere left to run. You are absolutely right, Jackal. For you. As the time bombs detonate, encasing the lower floors with flame and broken monuments, coins everywhere and sovereigns raining from the surroundings. After all this, Finch, what I cannot understand is why. Why Bloodsnitch? Why the royals? Oh, you wish to know so badly, don't you? You see this? holding up a brown leather case with a metallic buckle and appearing to have considerable weight. What is it? Your father's legacy. You are wrong. You did not know my father. On the contrary, myself and your father go to the past and beyond, both scientific minds hired for the empire, for king and country under the banner of Bloodsnitch. Listen intently, Jekyll for this will be your last truth. All the greatest minds were convened and ordered by the royals to enhance development of a perfect empire, a perfect soldier. We all took different approaches to our given task. I dabbled in the mind, enhancing brain function, and thinking, whilst your father tried to deal with blood. He had this theory that Darwin's idea would entitle man to unlock primitive characters within their blood enabling them to become more primal in the hopes of natural selection, priming them for battle no matter what the task. What he unlocked, however, was a monster hiding in the human being itself. Darkness within that would consume not only his body, but his life. I don't understand. I don't expect you to. The fact is, your father perfected an elixir which, when consumed, would enable the monster to be released. This monster was magnificent, with eyes of soulless black and appendages rivaling an arthropod, its senses hyper-personified and abilities almost supernatural. Much like these visions I keep experiencing. Yes, that is it, Jekyll. He dwells in you as well, passed on by your father. At first, his allure was fascinating, with the prospect of the perfect weapon. But then... Then what? Your father became unstable. 
his personality changed. He had completely relinquished himself to this creature, and that is why the royals feared him, and eventually had him exiled from London to Paris. Of course, once Paris had become a problem, he was summoned back to London to prevent a world war. After the death of his comrade, he returned to us, and we ensured that for his safety, he would have to destroy the elixir. So what happened? Finch. He could not bring himself to destroy it. The monster had become too strong of will, and your father then went to claim you. What are you speaking of? Do you recall any visions of a monster creeping past your window? That familiar, yet scary beast. That, Isaac, was your father. That is Jekyll to you. And how would you know of that? Because we followed him, and witnessed. We brought this matter to the royal's attention, and they deemed him unsafe, and gave permission for his execution. You are lying. I wish I were. You were sent away by the royals to live with your grandparents, and their waiter. What was his name? Bernard. None of your concern. Very well. Our compass was posted as his death sentence, and he chose to stay. Not knowing the house contained your mother, we burnt it to the ground. Only hearing screams did we realise we were killing your mother as well. You you killed my parents? Unwillingly, Jekyll. The royals killed your parents. Once news had spread that your mother had perished, the royals saw fit to abolish all of us, stripping wealth, stature, and class. So, this is simply revenge, not just for me, but you as well. Does it not say vengeance is mine in your faith? Even darkness can quote scripture to suit its own needs but it's true justice which sees through your deceit. Knowing or not, you've still killed my parents, and justice will be served. I will personally see to it. Oh, I don't doubt it, Jekyll. But before you pull that trigger, bear witness to your father's ultimate success. As he drinks one of the elixir and begins his transformation, his voice becoming deeper and more haunting, his anatomy mimicking that of a species undescribed in natural science, and face separated into several segments, all opening to reveal a gnashing maw thronged with jagged teeth, his eyes as red as the sun setting, his spine extruding from his body, as if to resemble something prehistoric, his senses enhanced and strength increased, while his body broadens, my nightmare risen from the depths of where I had tried to bury it. I run with fear, grasping all that I be, and his steps echoing throughout, Fire contained beneath, and a monster pursuing me. Was this hell incarnate? How about we play a little game, Isaac? I do not partake in hide-and-seek. And once more, it is Jekyll. You were not worthy to know me by name. Oh, but can't you see what potential I have? With this, we would be invincible. Come, witness power beyond your wildest imagination and partake of the darkness, for soon the light will shine no more. That day will never come, I promise you. And if you want to witness true power, then allow me to demonstrate it to you. As I fire James' revolver, the chandelier, and it crashes through the floor, wooden debris and flames fill the air. I fall to grip the edge of a nearby doorway, 
as the floor hurtles from beneath my feet. Finch reverts, the vial not containing enough for a prolonged regeneration, and grips my leg, as if to drag me down with his already darkened soul. Do not fight it, Jekyll. Embrace it. Think of how many cases you could solve if you were to perfect it. We could join and find what your father could not, a way to control it, a power over the nations through fear and control. You already serve these ideals. Why not for your own? I serve one greater than myself and know that my father's sins can be forgiven. This is who I am. Isaac Jekyll, the one who has now found the truth, and the truth is that all of Bloodsnitch, including you, are beyond saving, and should be sentenced from whence you came. As I raise the revolver to Finch's head and pull the trigger, I utter the words, God forgive me, for even this soul had the potential of heaven, and it was not my right to deem him unworthy of it. However, as Finch falls from grace into the eternal flames, I spot the case of elixir in my peripheral vision. I reach, it just being out of my grip, with just an inch more finger's length. Jacko! As James grabs hold of my arm and supports my weight, I draw his attention to the elixir. James, we can do it. I can see my father's work. We could use it to help so many. Grow new limbs, which have been lost due to infection. The research, and not to mention strength for our empire. Jacko. Some things in this life are blessings from God. Others are creations of man, and even though I do not know God all that well, what I know of man is that his creations destroy. Please, Jekyll. Let it go. And as I reach my arm out one last time, I hold, thinking of words upon my father's headstone, remembering an old verse once, saying, Job... 28, 28. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. To stay away from evil is understanding. I grasp the strap and look up to James. Let it go, Jackal. It's not worth holding on to. Let your father's mistake die with bloodsnitch. You are right, James. I open my hand and loose it to the flames, reaching for James' other outstretched arm. He hoists me to safety, and we retreat down the stairs of stone, the only remnant not consumed by the blaze. After escaping death and the evil of my nightmares once more, I was now a firm believer, and fall to my knees thanking my father for redemption. Finch was dead, and with him, Bloodsnitch, or so I had thought. But I was all too aware of the members that remained. With his demise, I feel a greater shock than I felt of Boldsketch, a worthy adversary, had ended his own life, but the words in which he spoke couldn't have seemed more righteous. Well, Sergeant, he was tried, sentenced, and faced death, and even though it was achieved without proper proceedings, the same unjust monster that drains lives in the name of safety and freedom is the same that claims it for coldness and amusement. The moral of Finch's tale is that justice and vengeance are one and the same. Jekyll, are you saying criminals should be shown mercy? even when found guilty of committing such atrocities. No, my friend, I am simply raising the point that one should never kill, not in cold blood, or at all, unless it is the absolute last option. Otherwise, how do we expect to survive as a nation and promote peace rather than tyranny? 
Sometimes I think the whole notion of the death penalty should be abolished. Do you not agree, James? After all we have been through. Of course, Jekyll. But rest assured, soon the system will make a mistake, hang an innocent person or bring them to a premature death, and then the voice of London will be heard. You'll see. Just like Louis and his guillotine. Ah, yes. But that was a symbol of tyranny and killed many innocent, James. Just because of installing fear into one's kingdom. That was why it stands no longer. Of course, Jekyll. A rope doesn't install fear at all. With his sarcastic tone, I refrain from my answering, lest any conflict come of this. I had already lost two people that could have been saved. I was not going to allow a third. You were right, James. Perhaps it will cease one day, and crime will be sentenced through endurance rather than death. Perhaps morale will increase, but we must recall that, despite the fact we would no longer put them to death, they would still need to be punished for disobeying the law. Only difference being that everyone would be punished if found guilty, and not just those apparently beneath us. And with that said, we look to the future now brightened once more by the closing of this case. There was still Mrs. Ilias' sentence to attend to, but I doubt they would hang a woman simply because it is a gruesome and horrific contraption to use, now knowing ourselves. I would never wish this upon any, especially a woman with such pride. But alas, I was not the judge, and should not take the law into my own hands, lest I lose focus on my true priorities. I devour my words as I look upon the same thronging teeth of the law's innocent sentencing Mrs. Ilias to death, without even the benefit of a doubt, and even considering the evidence. Oh, how man has not changed its coliseum. I feel regret and anguish grip my throat, as I urge to speak against myself. But before I can, the gavel is brought down, once, twice, thrice. And as the judge begins to utter those words of conviction, James recalls me to the outer corridors, and we walk away, turning our backs on the entire matter, hoping never to endure such a task for the remainder of our lives. I never realized how difficult life could be when one sees both sides and tries to hold both together, but they themselves fall apart trying. I believe one should not inhibit two worlds, for it causes great pain and guilt. Despite taking this course of action for a worthy cause, I feel divided, as if into two halves, one hunting, to punish and enslave, the other to serve and protect. Jekyll, you were right. I have seen better days, James, but I wish this could be one of them. Yeah, well, we did what we were called to do. It's never easy, but the people of London, and their children, I might add, are safe once more, and just like before this whole mess even started, life once again returns to normal. Yes, but I cannot help but wonder... What happens to Bloodsnitch? Losing their leader will take its toll, I suppose. Quite. I think they will find a replacement, but I doubt this will ever come to pass again. Now we are wiser to their proceedings, eh, Jekyll? Absolutely. And whenever they do rise from the ashes, we will be there to send them back. How I long for the day of no more evil. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jekyll, Flint. Allow me to extend my hand in gratitude, and thank you personally for not just saving this city but our livelihoods as well. Godspeed to both of you, and keep an ear to the ground, just in case they do come back. It's been an honour and a privilege. Goodbye, and good luck. McLean salutes us, 
as if soldiers of warfare bearing his wounds and saving his life on continual occasions. But we had won the battle, and victory was ours. But just like war, it comes with a price, no matter the side you fight for. Take care, McLean. Don't go getting yourself into any stables or false letter situations, will you? As McLean rides off into the distance, the sound of horses galloping down the street and pigeons blotting out the sun. Even the weather had sensed normality, and it was soothing to feel the relaxing waves of heat upon our faces and see colour, as if a painter had struck the sky. Purples, pinks, and orangey yellows, all symbolic of peace and tranquillity. But how long would it last? Only time would tell. Jerkle. Is it finished? Of this I am not sure, James, but I hope so. Once I return home, I think I will seek a new profession. One that helps mankind, but to save people's lives rather than condemn them. Excuse me, gentlemen. Am I addressing Inspector Jackal and Flint? We are most assuredly them, my good man. To what do we owe this honour? Her Majesty the Queen, and future King, of which you work so hard to protect, would like your presence to thank you personally on behalf of the royal household. Well, as unexpected as this is... Uh... James? We would be honoured. Bravo. Well, if you would be so kind as to accompany me to the palace, then you will be shown gratitude, and perhaps rewarded for your valiant efforts in this matter. But first... I would like to inform you that on behalf of the British Empire, we the people, thank you. The kindest words I had ever heard spoken of us. It was nice to feel appreciated, but by Her Majesty, this was greatly unexpected. As what two gentlemen would do to stand out from the division of rich and poor, what would we have done to be unique? What could we have done to save them? I turned to James and uttered these words, knowing well how self-centered they were but I was desperately trying to cover the guilt and trying to hide my compassion for the others who lost their lives on this tragic day, and all across history, because man must rule, and one day they will get the idea that no matter how much we try to be divine and rule with a monarchy, a senate, an oligarchy, a democracy, whatever the case may be, man will always have a wealth divide, and until we deal with that issue and ensure good quality of life across the known world, then who are we to rule? Who are we to judge? Who are we? Finally, some recognition for our efforts, James, and an audience with Queen Victoria herself, and Edward, the soon-to-be king. Of course, not too soon. Her Majesty has years in her reign yet. Stumbling over my words, so as not to have my head rain from my shoulders, but with six attempts on her life so far, I had a feeling that it would not be long before a new monarch graced our nation. As I turn to James and hide behind an empty smile, I cannot help but feel my part in this whole scenario and blame myself for its outcome, filled with so much cost and none of them being my own. But James reminds me of that most precious of words. Jekyll, what do you think? If one is to be truly safe, he must sacrifice all fear. If one is to be free, he must first sacrifice his life. And if one wants to be themselves they should first sacrifice others' opinion of themselves. Incredible, James. Come up with that yourself. Well, beyond these inner walls, Jekyll, lies a philosopher and genius whose sole desire is to see the world free from the world, as it were. I could not agree more, James. 
Peace does come at a price, but that price must be paid in order for peace to occur. I guess that is where I have lost focus. Thank you for reminding me, old friend. And with my heart lifted, we make pace toward the palace, with the promise of reward beckoning. But this time I was cautious. After all, we'd been given our just rewards on a silver platter before, and ended up awaiting the gallows for our expectations. The royal palace, more magnificent than ever, as if missing its jewel with Her Majesty's absence. But now she had returned from Scotland's summer residence. The set was finally complete. The entire palace glistened with gold, shards and pillars alike, dancing across the visual landscape like stars of wonder, the lions coming to life as if awoken from their solidified slumber, and raising their trumpets skyward to welcome us into the empirical arms of Britain. The guards parting as the Red Sea of Egypt to show a direct pathway why we could not help but feel as royalty ourselves. We freeze in motion at the beginning of our carpet of scarlet and golden embroidery, with a purple trim and the crown's emblem protruding forth from its centre. Introducing Inspectors Isaac Jackal and James Flint, Your Majesty. Harkens the palace guard, with a loud and dominant voice, enough to shake the foundations of the building. Come forth, gentlemen. Don't be afraid. I have heard so much about you and your persistent quest to ensure my safety. And for that, I am grateful to both of you. As we walk closer, not wishing to offend Her Majesty, lest we lose more than our reputation. Well, do not be shy. Speak to me, and tell me of your findings. Well, Your Majesty, it is a great honour and privilege to be the first to tell you our tale. It all started... Then they were sentenced earlier this morning, and the case was closed. I hope I haven't bored Her Majesty. On the contrary, I find this tale quite invigorating. It is somewhat difficult to imagine what occurs during one's absence. But also, shameful that this great nation has not learned of my influence. Even when I am absent, I still rule over this great empire. I am still the queen, and still the first empress of India, but none to worry. This will be perceived now that I have returned, I am sure. On behalf of the royal household, I thank you, and you will be richly rewarded for your efforts. But might I ask one question? Of course, your eminence. Why is your friend paying more attention to the ceiling than to his crowning achievement? Oh, <laughs> you know the Jekyll family, your majesty. Always in admiration, not to mean he looks away in discontent but admires all you have achieved in your long reign and life for that matter. How kind of you to think so, Jekyll. I guess some gentlemen still honour royalty, when certain others cannot wait for me to relinquish my life in order for power to be for the taking, like this blood snitch you have told me about. Tell me, are there any left, do you suppose? Yes, Your Majesty. In fact, could I ask you remain still? And surround yourself in guards, please. Why, whatever for? Because I think a seventh attempt is about to be tried. And without thinking, I shout, All hail the Queen! And guards rush in to surround and congratulate her. And amidst their gratitude, with Her Majesty's gloating, I seek the source of a golden glow, taking perch on one of the chandeliers. As I grow closer, I see a human figure standing on a pillar just out of sight, behind the mass object, 
so as to conceal his presence, and as I fire at him, I yell, Protect the Queen at all costs, James. Will do, Jekyll. Follow me, Your Majesty. You'll be safe with us, I promise you. Guards, shield the Queen. They form an impenetrable circle, as if in nature, and protect Her Majesty as if they're young. I chase the shaded assailant through the tower and run amidst rooms of heritage, younger life and general usage, whilst attempting to thwart a seventh claim on Her Majesty's life. Perhaps this could redeem myself and cleanse the guilt I could not help but feel. But before that would occur, I would need to make a sacrifice all my own. Who are you? And why do you run from the law unless you have something to hide? You have no idea of bloodsnitch, you fool. You would think you of all people would know. Eliminate its leader, and another shall rise. A voice echoes through the darkness of corridors, and flashes of gunfire raise their heads like a hydra, hitting from all angles. Do not think for one second I will not do everything in my power to stop you. I will put an end to Bloodsnitch. But alas, before I knew it, they were gone, and had disappeared amongst the royal treasury, where all manner of gold glistened. My ally would not be able to assist in this matter, and Her Majesty and James would need assistance. I abandoned the chase for now, knowing full well we would lock horns again sometime soon. Are you all right, Jekyll? Did he escape? Unfortunately, James. Your Majesty, I would like you to seek refuge until this matter is resolved. I will solve this case or die trying, you have my word. Very well, gentlemen. I shall respectfully recline, and I hereby charge you with the bringing forth of this man for queen and country. Return him to me alive or otherwise, but assure me of his end, and then you may call yourselves finished with this case. As Her Majesty moves to seclude herself in safety, I am fully aware of Bloodsnitch involvement, so I head for Scotland Yard. But without a cart, and Bernard being so far away for quick transport, a timid and considerate rider, none to be found. The steam engine was our only option. As we go to buy our passes, he stands out amongst the crowd, and fires at us on several occasions. And as we protrude ourselves, he gains ground amidst the screaming and helpless public. We fight our way through the raging vortices of people, and launch ourselves onto the first steam-driven locomotive, giving chase after our elusive prey, and bearing our teeth not in rage, but in the light of the hunt, our primal instinct consuming us, and achieving feats considered unnatural by others in an attempt to catch him. Everyone, lower yourselves out of harm's way, or you may lose your life. As screams of panic and confusion fill the air like a foreign gas, dividing the two chambers one from another, do not follow me, or you will be responsible for several more deaths. No one will die in these carriages today, you servant of darkness. As I pull my revolver to my face and prepare to fire upon his last known position, I fire several shots to force him back into the front compartment and clip his leg as he endeavours to retreat. Come back and face your consequences like a man and not a coward. We pursue and entrap him in the front of this smoke-driven machine destined for change. I warned you. As he pulls the lever and increases our speed by a considerable amount, we lose our balance and I fire upon him. We speed past our supposed destination and veer off to an accompanying track. Knowing all these people feared for their lives, we would have to bring this bloodsnitch to justice once and for all. This is your last chance to throw down your arms and surrender, or we will have to resort to killing you, and trust me, enough have died by my hand. No, oh, weep for me. You want me? Come retrieve me. Favoring his leg, 
He fires upon us, and frantically holds people to a ransom of mass proportions. Okay, James, when I give the signal, cover me with gunshot. I will try to outflank him, and take an approach from behind to cut off his retreat before any others are seriously injured. You got it, Jekyll. Be careful. Aren't I always, old friend? As James unleashes the fury of his rounds, and gives the assassin a test he will not soon forget, I near the door and open, a massive gush of wind restricts me, but I brace myself and attach to the outer railings, climbing an open window and exterior ornaments. My goal, with revolver in hand, I call, Lay down your weapon, and I shall ensure we both get off this out-of-control machine unharmed. How ludicrous a claim. We were travelling at a speed which almost guaranteed injury, but better than death. Right? Sorry, I have other plans. Ah! As I take a bullet to the shoulder and drop my gun, and do not think to pick it up and retrieve it, clutching my shoulder I leap onto the assassin and tackle him to the ground, trying to grab his hands to stop his attacks, as well as secure his identity. The roar of the tracks beneath us seems louder, and each sends a ripple throughout my body, causing severe pain in my arms. As the assassin manipulates my shoulder, I find myself in a compromising position, with my head being forced over the side, and my top hat falling to the wind. How it had managed to stay on all this time was beyond me. Feeling helpless, Jekyll. Cannot do anything, can you? You're weak, and always will be. You see, that is where you are wrong. I'm strong, and you? You do not deserve this train. I concur. As I struggle to regain breath and my posture, there stands James, saviour of my life once again. But one thing was for sure. I certainly felt better than the assassin. This is becoming a second employment, James. Yeah. Well, how do you propose we stop this machine, Jekyll? We're nearing the track's end. Fast. I have an idea. One which will end our journey in more than one way. Oh. Pass me your pistol. Certainly, old chap. But I've only a few rounds left. Fine by me. That is all I require. With a single shot, I cleave the bolt, securing the front carriage from the rest of the locomotive, in two, separating us. As the assassin gains consciousness, it is far too late for him, and his carriage derails, toppling down like a child's first attempt at cycling and cannot recover. Soon after, a blaze ignites the fuel line and sends the contents skyward, engulfing all manner of air and metal in its flaming jaws. As the carriage draws to a standstill, an eerie silence sweeps across the plain, sending shivers down my spine, as if I knew the assassin better than I thought. Well, I do not know how we are going to pay for the damage, but all I can say is I'm glad it's finally over. I agree, Jekyll. A new destiny awaits the both of us, but first we had better return to Her Majesty, and ask her to come out from solitude, or else Bloodsnitch may win after all. Thanks to us, James. They will never win. The Empire will end by its own accord, not because of fear or a lack of minds, but because it is the nature of things. Everything has a beginning and an end, though yours is probably far further on than mine, old friend. No, no, Jekyll. It's only a bullet wound. The medical practitioner will treat it and disinfect it in no time at all. Medicine has moved on since the old days, Jekyll. Perhaps you are right, James. Maybe that should be my next destiny. Medicine. To save lives rather than end them. And Dr. Jekyll has a nice ring to it, don't you think? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. We still have this case to finish. And with several knots, we head to the doors and release the passengers from their chambers, receiving words of kindness and gratitude along their departures. Maintain this area, James. I'll be right back. I just wish to clear my mind and conscience for a while, all right? Sure thing, Jekyll. You go ahead. 
but just call if you need me. Thank you, old friend. As I approach the burning wreckage, I am filled with deep sorrow, and also great hope. My emotions conflict, such as war within my mind, my heart, my soul. To be burned alive is no great end, but what he would face was no indifferent. We must protect the people we care for with our lives, whether we receive credit or not. We will know what we had accomplished. If no one shows credit for your actions, it is not because they do not see them, or are ignoring them, but it is because these acts of goodwill should remain humble. If one professes themselves a hero, then their heart is in question, for they protect themselves and their own desires, whereas the silent protect the world in secret, and are less likely to be sought after as a result. Nonetheless, receive congratulations, but count them accomplishments. This will prove a greater reward for your humble nature. The gold flickers no longer, and my ears only hear the melting of metal and burning of embers as flames dance in front of me, drawing me into their presence and shape-shifting into various figures and forms. I hold James' revolver in my hand and look into the fire, wondering whether the darkness which consumed my father would ever consume me. But I wanted no part of it, and as I wish to escape from this predicament, James rests his hand on my shoulder, causing more pain and not realising. Bless him. You ready to leave now? I believe so, James. I believe so. We return our attention unto Her Majesty's Palace, with every intention of finally putting this behind us, and looking forward to a new and brighter future. As we arrive at Buckingham, we come to realise that the royal family have retreated to Windsor Castle, as there were important matters to discuss. I understand, and felt it acceptable, but James cannot help but question, So this is how we are met? With a shunned appearance and no gratitude? Well, I hope they don't think me a fool, and will help at their earliest convenience. They will be surprised and disappointed. Now, now, James, you must consider Her Majesty's work and family. All those marriages to arrange and papers to write, one cannot even fathom the kind of workload the Queen possesses. You must sympathise, surely. You know as well as I what it is like to work yourself to exhaustion, and besides, she does have an empire to rule, and that cannot be easy, can it? So come on, what do you say? With a plea of forgiveness, James soon replies, Well, all right, Jekyll. But Her Majesty is you to thank, and your knowledge of convincing words. If I did not know better, I would say you had sophistic heritage. Perhaps, or maybe I love to debate with my masters at any occasion, and learn valuable knowledge of how to weaken one's argument, even though at first theirs appears the stronger. Why, words can even defy Darwin's theory. Despite being a brave man, his theory is shunned by several. But has anyone stopped to think that perhaps God changes animals over time to better suit their environment? Instead of mocking one's theory, we should find the strength in his argument and perceive it in a holy way. That should gain acceptance after all. Science without religion is false, and religion without science is blind. A friend of mine once said, and I am sure it will be repeated throughout history. Quite right, Jekyll. But do you believe his theory? I must admit the concepts seem strange, but there are several connections. And if he says the stronger exceeds the weaker, is he not subtly keeping tradition? And whilst the notion of being related to a primate diminishes my intelligence, I can see where a basic design has been used, which has simply changed. That I can see for myself. But the only thing I can test is that it happens by consequence. By accident. And you know better than I, James. In life there are no accidents. But that is my opinion. So you do not shun his theory? 
but state it lacks a purpose behind it. Quite right. But Darwin's spirited enough to figure that out. And if not, then it's a case to solve for the greater minds of the future. Perhaps one day religion and science will coexist and utilise each other's knowledge to better mankind together. But as long as one tries to battle the other, it is no better than the war started for land or power, in my opinion. I know I speak the impossible, but even complete opposites can share common goals and could potentially be allies. All it takes is for people to swallow their pride and be more open-minded. This does not mean believe anything you are told, but to use modern evidence to further solidify your faith. You mean using science to prove faith's existence? <laughs> you are mad, Jekyll. Maybe. But what else do we have, James? Fair point, Jekyll. A fair point indeed. Well, seeing as we no longer have a reason to remain here, I suggest we begin our journey home, right? Right, Jekyll. I suppose Bernard will want to hear all about this, seeing as we were too busy to convey messages by mail or telephone. Yes, quite right. But I cannot help but wonder what you plan to do now, James. I guess you will be moving on as you always are. Yeah, Jekyll. I plan to arrive in Parliament and put an end to the gallows. That experience awakened something in me to fight for its abolishment. So I'm going to chase that vision. And you? I am going to study medicine after all. With women pioneering these days, they will need some competition to go against. <laughs> not to say that women and medicine should not be together. I think this movement should have occurred a long time ago and should have been deemed equal when men were deemed equal. But that is my opinion. No. I plan to save lives rather than end them. Perhaps I could defeat cholera or diarrhoea, save hundreds of people and redeem my once darkened actions in the eyes of the law. Also, I could find a way for the world to experience my talents of gold and heightened senses, if you know what I mean, James. A tablet or serum to allow others your abilities. Sounds like a good idea. But what about control? Control is an illusion, James. But once in unison, then it will be a benefit. Have no fear. It will be tested on several occasions, first, before administrations to human consumption, I assure you. Well, I guess I will see you someday then, Dr. Jekyll. And I, you, Tiberius Ovarius Skepticus. I mean, James Flint, my immortal friend. And as James disappears into the fog of London, I hold my lamp alone, a metaphorical one, of course, and wander through to find my home again. My heart beats, as though searching for a place of rest. Ideas fill my mind with what the future would bring. Incredible things, or terrible things. After all, I had heard rumours of nations becoming resilient, and fought over territory. How long until this world would be consumed by war? Only time would tell. I enlist my senses to find home, and like a beacon I am drawn near to its foundations. But as I draw closer, it seems the great fire of London had repeated itself, with golden shards glistening all over, my vision feeling permanently secured this way. I strain my eyes to see colour, but it is far too strong. Perhaps James was right. Perhaps I would have to gain control before others could. A pulse travels down my body, and gold echoes through the streets. Colour returns, and I shake my head frantically, trying to make head or tail of my situation. I stroll to the door and unlock his protective measures, and there to greet me, an injured and bruised Bernard. What happened, old chap? You look like you've journeyed to the frontier and back. Not quite, sir. I fell down the stairs. 
did not see that compass and lost my footing. Oh, you mean this compass? Are you hurt seriously? No, sir, just some minor scrapes and bruising. The doctor said I will be fine. How is your health? Well, apart from this bullet in my shoulder, I'm just fine. I will tell you all about it over a nice cup of tea, but then you probably know the end of the story by now. Do you not? I could not agree more, sir, but first I had better telephone an ambulance car for you. Very well. I will wait for you in the study, old chap. Very well, sir. Hello. Yes, all is well, sir. Our plan will succeed, and I will be darned if I let him interfere again. Very good, sir. Consider it done. As Bernard nears the corner and draws a revolver, pulling the latch to put an end to this case once and for all. In the years that follow, my heart grows heavy for all those lost that day, and why Bernard had not considered running. The truth was a clever corner. It can deceive, and it was a fitting end, especially for an assassin. I stand at the foot of their graves, not knowing whether to look to the heavens for my family, or to the depths for my fallen. All I knew was I would right the wrongs done by the past. I would find the truth and unravel the mystery my father had made. But that, dear reader, is a story for another time. Now, all you need to know is the next few years were that of darkness, lies and deceit, and as I frantically look for the truth it becomes abundantly clear. My father had been part of a secret society, and the royals did not want it exposed. They pursued me with intent on silencing what had ensnared him. Why did the monster known as Hyde not surrender his grip? Why were we plagued by sinister forces? All I knew was to see the truth I would have to look for a path already carved for me, a glimmer of hope to secure my father's innocence, seeking redemption, seeking faith, looking desperately for sanctuary, for safety, for a light in the mist. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. This is the section where we discuss the ideas that have come forth in the chapter and how they came to be. So getting straight off, this is more to do with the chapter before that I just forgot to mention. The name of chapter 6 is A Day to Remember. This is one of those occasions where it references a band that we listen to. A Day to Remember are one of my favourite bands and they've been very influential uh, not just through the time of us writing A Light in the Mist, but also, you know, we're still very much fans of them now. The second point is in this chapter, we discover that Blood Snitch is actually a secret society. Now, this is linked to the more darker archetype of secret societies. Not to say that I agree with the dark archetypes, uh, because in most cases, I believe that secret societies are actually quite benevolent. And as long as they're not bringing harm to themselves or other people, you know, why not allow them to practice whatever faith they deem necessary? Uh, just because it's kept secret doesn't necessarily mean it's evil. Um, but we definitely explored the dark archetype of secret societies when creating Blood Snitch, basically to show that during Victorian London, there were these, these groups that were going around, you know, basically trying to overthrow the government, trying to overthrow society, overthrow the queen, because they realized that if they could they could seize p 
power of the, over the entire nation, over the entire empire, which at that point spanned a quarter of the globe. The third point is there's reference to a phrase that says there's nowhere left to run. I believe Jekyll says it to Oswald Finch, but he says it in such a way, he says there's nowhere left to run. And this is a direct reference to General Woundwork from a film called Watership Down. Anyone who's seen Watership Down, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, it features the vocal talents of uh, Richard Briers. Um, people might know him from the UK Gold TV series of A Good Life. Uh, he's been in a few Shakespeare performances as well. I remember seeing him in a, uh, a remastering of Othello. But in Watership Down, it's basically a story about a journey of rabbits uh, going from a warren that gets dug up and they're trying to find their way to a new warren and it basically documents their entire journey uh, but the historical backdrop behind it reflects the second world war um, where you have meetings between groups of animals coming from different cultures and that sort of thing and there's a moment in that movie where general wound work basically uh, captures the group led by hazel uh, on the bank of a river and he comes up to him and he says, there's nowhere left to run. And then basically they make a distraction and end up escaping on a boat. But it's one of those one of those moments that found its way into our book. The fourth point is the description of Hyde. Now, in previous novels, uh, including Robert Louis Stevenson, Hyde has been described as basically like a shortened version of a person. Like his, his features have been like grotesquely disproportionate, but... Overall, it's basically a smaller version of a human being. And I always felt like this, like, lacked imagination. Because it's like, you're, you're unlocking your darker side. And that either makes you, um, someone who's shorter. Or in the sense of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I thought it was better done. Uh, because they basically made him look like a tank from Left 4 Dead. But even then, again, it's grossly disproportionate and it just, it doesn't like exercise what I would imagine from a serum that unlocks the darker side of humanity. So with this in mind, obviously I was into Doctor Who quite a bit during the time, mainly around the sort of Christopher Eccleston going into the David Tennant age. And one of the episodes was called The Lazarus Project. And I really enjoyed that because it was like the... The guy, Dr. Lazarus, he was trying to unlock primitive genes in the human genome. And he kept transforming into this arthropod-like creature. And his lower jaw would split in two and his voice would go darker. His spine was extruding. He'd have like a scorpion-like appearance. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's the kind of thing I want to capture for Hyde. You know, so uh, this is one of those cases where a TV series actually encouraged us to in our description of, of Hyde during this chapter. The final point is the plot twist. Now, toward the end, it's revealed that Bernard is the assassin, uh, the person who basically attempted to assassinate the Queen the seventh time. And throughout the entire novel, he has been an agent of Bloodsnitch. Um, of course, this has completely come out of nowhere. And, you know, toward the start of the book you would have thought he was just a waiter he was just a butler and this is one of those ways in which you can set up a plot twist and as i've mentioned in a previous episode that goes into plot twists in a small amount basically so long as you give the inclination that there's a tie between 
those things or you lead up to that point you give subtle hints that that is the case all the way through the story it normally plays out well now throughout the book you'll notice that as soon as it starts off Jekyll finds a compass that he doesn't recognize it has no no dials you ask yourself where would that have come from then in leading up to the confrontation uh, with Oswald Finch he turns around and he says you were sent by the royals to to live with your grandparents and their waiter what was his name Bernard so that shows that there's a link between Bloodsnitch and Bernard and then of course you have the final realization if you hadn't spotted it already perhaps due to my poor vocal talents but basically when Jekyll is confronting the assassin he feels like he knows him he has this sense like I knew the assailant or I knew the assassin more than I thought so it gives you that sort of inkling all the way through more toward the end but all the way through the book leading up to Bernard finally revealing himself to be the assassin. Okay, so that pretty much sums it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. This is the section where we go through helpful hints and tips for those of you who are aspiring to be authors yourselves. So carrying on from last episode, we discussed the third part of the planning stage, which was known as backstory. Carrying on from that, we're going to be going into the fourth and final part of what I would consider my planning stage, and that's time period. This can apply to you whether you're setting your novel in uh, a recent time, so whether you're doing it in the time that you actually live in, or whether you're setting it even you know in the past. Uh, it's, it's less important if you're writing a dystopian novel, because obviously the future is not set in stone. You can't really research the future, but you can make predictions. So that's sort of still something to consider. It's still something to think about. Uh, and a lot of the things that you find in a particular time period can still have relevance to a dystopian setting. But without going into that too much, basically for a, a time period setting, uh, there are sections within that that I personally research just to help with what we call world building. Now, this will probably be referred to several times as we go through these helpful hints and tips. But basically what world building is, uh, and, and people that have written fantasy novels will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's basically how you build up the world around you, you know, so it's not just making your characters, it's not just writing the story, but it's describing the world and making it come to life, you know, so it's describing the architecture, it's describing the currency, uh, how people you know, what they're going through. Is it a time of war? Is it a time of plague? All these different sorts of things that you can use. And it's exactly the same with time period. So what I start off with is background history. So for example, the background setting, normally a story will last a couple of days, a week, maybe to a month, maybe to a year. What happens during that year? You know, um, so basically I would advise you go on Wikipedia, type in the year that you're writing in, and it comes up with a list of stuff that was happening worldwide for that. Um, of course, it's something you can research in books as well. A couple of ones I use. Uh, there's a book called The Last 1000 Years. And it's written by Anita Ganeri, Hazel Mary Martell and Brian Williams. That's a really good one uh, for basically historical documentation, historical facts. Uh, and then you've got The Century World History Fact Finder by Colin McEvity. Uh, it's got like a bronze uh, death mask, I would describe it, on the front. 
And basically that has got like a yearly account of all the stuff that's happening in that particular year across the social and political like side of things. So those two are really like decent books that I would highly recommend for doing background research. But basically it just helps you to see what's going on during those years, you know, uh, politically, socioeconomically, whether it's a time of war, like I've mentioned before, plague, uh, you know, is there, is there disgruntlement between two groups of people? You know, is there religious upheaval? All these different sorts of things. Uh, that sort of takes you into the next part, which is background life. So what is life like for basically what I would refer to as the common person during this time? So obviously the further back in time you go, the less pivotal people are in society. You know, uh, modern day, you know, you have the working class, you know, um, back in medieval times, they'd be common farmers. They would be people that tended to livestock, that sort of thing. The next part would be fashion, um, because even though you may not know a lot about fashion, it pays to do research on what people are wearing at the time, because the last thing you want to do, especially if you're like me, uh, and you, you really get like, not annoyed, but sort of it, it niggles at you when you know that a certain item of clothing wasn't worn or a certain detail pops up in a book that's supposed to be historically accurate. Uh, of course, you're writing fiction, so you don't have to be historically accurate. But if you're like me and you do want some level of authenticity to it, despite being fiction, uh, fashion's something to consider. Uh, because obviously, you don't want to go writing a story that's set in Georgian times where they'd be wearing uh, hose and jabot and wigs. And then you mention, oh, they're wearing a pair of denim jeans. The next part would be crime and punishment. Uh, this specifically tailors to the thriller genre. Um, otherwise, you don't really need to know about it uh, unless you want to include it for your own sake. But basically, it pays to research what punishments for certain crimes were, judicial system, you know, was it... Uh, a quick sort of get them through, get them tried, sentenced sort of thing, as you'll find when you go further back in time, you'll realise that the judicial practices don't last half as long as they do today. Were the punishments far more severe? Again, you go further back in time, you'll find that punishments were incredibly severe for some of like really minor offences that we would consider today, uh, whereas it seems to be the opposite today. Uh, the next part is technology. So what was built around the time? You know, so again... It's all about historical accuracies. You know, you don't want to go writing a novel in medieval times and all of a sudden they got a microscope. You know, it, it's not going to happen. Yes, you might have the, the bits there to assemble one. Make sure you mention that. You know, if you have the parts to assemble one and make like a makeshift version, fair enough. That's fine. But a fully fledged, like, you know, electron microscope, no, it's not going to happen because you don't have the facilities. So it pays to do the research. Uh, currency would be the next part because obviously depending on where you are in the world, depending on what time period you're in, I mean, our currency in Britain has changed several times throughout history, depending on our monarch, depending on the influences that we've had. So it just helps to, to do, um, research into that. Then I would go into the socio and economic climate. So was it a time of a depression? You know, where it was, uh, unemployment levels high? Was it a time for peace? Was it a time for uh, famine? That sort of thing. And then the socio side of things, like I said, was there 
disgruntlement between groups of people? You know, is it a highly racial point in time? Is it a xenophobic moment in time? Is it homophobic? You know, all these different sorts of things. If you feel the need to address them in your book, they're worth researching. And then finally, I'd go into the leaders, because obviously, even if you don't have to mention or reference any of the leaders during the time, it pays to know who they are, because it just helps to solidify that time period. So knowing who's in parliament at the time, knowing who is the senator, the emperor, the king or queen, knowing that, again, it helps you to sort of build this world. And with all of those sections, I would say that that is enough research to be able to then write a fully fledged novel. Now, obviously, you don't have to be as thorough as I am. I, I, as you can tell from all of this, I like to thoroughly research novels before I write them. Uh, other people, you can just blag it at the end of the day. Um, but like I said, even though you're writing fiction, it pays to have some level of accuracy because it makes the content more relatable and it means that you can reach an audience that have a more academic background as well. Because if they are as picky as I am, they're going to be looking for those details, you know, and it helps with uh, critics as well, because they're going to be looking for those details, you know. So if you can get those things right, it's one less thing for them to criticize, especially if you're looking to get published. So uh, I can't emphasize the point of research enough. And obviously you can add topics to that list. You know, it's not... It's not a set list. You don't have to have those sections and you can't research anything else. If there's anything else that you need to research, go for it. What I would advise is the more research you do, the more accurate and the better your novel is going to come across. Okay, so that sums it up for this section. And that's the end of season one. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in really means the world to us that you would take this amount of time out of your busy schedules to make us a part of it. Thank you for joining us for the entire season. Of course, we'll endeavour to include all of the links to anything that's been mentioned in the episodes in the description below. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head on over to another podcast called Genuine Chit Chat. It's a conversation-based podcast. I've mentioned it several times in previous episodes. It's hosted by a friend of mine, Mike Burton. It's a conversational podcast that covers a range of topics, basically a new topic of conversation every week. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tune in to that podcast as well. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Now I just want to take the time to give like a, a personal thank you to everyone who's listened to the first season. Of course, at the end of every episode, we try to show our appreciation, but sometimes a couple of minutes isn't really enough to say just how important you are. I just want to say with all my heart, it means a lot that you would listen to our podcast. And if you've taken something from it, that's the whole reason we do it. If it's inspired you, if it's brought a smile to your face, you know, if it's encouraged you to go on and do incredible and amazing things, then I'm doing my job. I just want to say that you all mean the world to me. And I hope throughout this journey, throughout this podcast, you come to realize your full potential and you come to realize that together we can make the world a better place and life as well. So cheers, guys. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you in season two.